Mark enthusiasm yesterday, Philippians 2 a little bit, we'll chat and move forward. Uh, some really cool stuff uh, that we can uh, get out of this, I think, and uh, challenging to us in our lives. And uh, that's good for us, we need to be challenged in our lives a lot. And uh, before we start, Joel, would you listen? Dear Lord, we want to thank you for this wonderful day you bless us with. Spend time with other fellow Christians. Have fun. Remember why you work with Craig and you use Brother Gary. Help them to remember everything that he's prepared and to present the way that they understand it. Please help us to try our best to pay attention and get everything out of what we can and to make application to our own lives. When we leave this place, to go out and to teach others what we do. Give us all the things we do wrong, especially one thing for you sending your son Jesus down across for our sins. We know we uh, we see some things in Philippians. It was a really good church. All spent time there, and they had a lot of contact with each other. The Philippians had often sent money to him and showed concern for him. They'd recently sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, to try to help and encourage him while he was in prison. So he's writing this letter back to the Philippians. And you know, overall, it was a church that brought him a lot of joy. They were doing well in the Lord. It's always so encouraging to see your brothers do well in the Lord. But almost all of us have some kind of something that we need to work on, something that's kind of a problem. And the Philippian church seems to have had some struggles with not being united, maybe even some quarreling. Uh, we'll find out in chapter 4 that a couple of ladies in the congregation that had a falling out and needed to reconcile. And apparently that was kind of a symptom of, of kind of one of the issues in that group. And so Paul exhorted them in 127 to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He, he exhorted them in 2-2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He is saying, you, not, you guys need to be working together. You need to be just one, one mind, one soul, one spirit, one heart, because you're all one in Christ. And that unity uh, needs to just really live in their spiritual life as a group. Now there are things that threaten that unity. And you see them in 3 and 4. And this is what we see as the problem. We're not talking about here some doctrinal issue that was divided in a group. We're talking about, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You've got two things here. Selfishness and pride. And selfishness and pride make it impossible for us to be united at one heart and soul with our brothers. You know, it just divides us. Because when we're self-seeking, we're not seeking what's best for them. We're seeking what we want for us. And when we're prideful, we're always thinking about how we look. We're thinking about, you know, uh, how, how, how people think of us. Uh, we want to honor ourselves. We want to get attention. Uh, we can't do that. So what he says, to regard one another as more important than yourself and to really look out for other people's interests, 
That is the key to overcoming the problems that were separating these brethren. And that's where we start. And what he's going to do, we're going to cite some examples that are tremendously powerful examples to show us the kind of heart and attitude we need to have. Do you have any questions or comments before we continue? Okay, would somebody read 5 through 11? about Jesus' character. This may be the one that is the most noteworthy. He starts out with where Jesus was. Before he came to the earth, what was Jesus' life like? God. What what it's like to be God. What would it be like to be God? Cool. 
be so honored, so glorious, and, and you know, you just the the honor and the attention and the exaltation. I think that would be really something. That's the other thing. You're in heaven. Wow. Everything's wonderful, perfect, awesome environment. I mean, the best place you could ever imagine to be. Wow. So we said lots of stuff about what it'd be like to be God. You all talk about that a lot, haven't you? Uh, well, he says in verse 6, Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I think what it's saying is, Jesus didn't like cling on to those things. Like, I'm not going to let go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep all these, uh, you know, rights and privileges and uh, kind of like the fringe benefits of being God. He didn't cling to those things. He gave up. He let go of them. So, like, he lost that. He wasn't there anymore. And he didn't get all the glory and exaltation. And he didn't have the, the power to run everything like he did. He came down and came from that. Now, can you imagine giving all that up? It's what we all want, especially going to heaven. Can you imagine being in heaven for a few years and then coming back? You know, I, I've been told this story. Uh, I did not read this book. A friend of mine did before we went to Brazil. Just to get a feel for it. It wasn't Brazil. Get a feel for what it was like to live in poverty. Uh, there was a, I think this was like a journalist that for two years, he, this is back in the 30s, he went to Calcutta, India, and lived in the slums in Calcutta, which, oh, wow. I mean, poor, poor, this poor. I mean, the unsanitary, you know, the starving, just horrible, pulsing, just about the lowest life you could live. And he did that for two years. To be able to live and tell the world to be like that. Can you imagine giving up all you've got to live in the slums of a city like I just can't imagine. You know, that's nothing compared to what Jesus gave up. Because what you've got right now is nothing like that. It's nothing like being God. It's pretty cool compared to Calcutta and the slums. But it's nothing like what Jesus gave up. So, you know, he had that and he gave it up. And it says in verse 7, there's really two stages in what Jesus did. In verse 7, what's the main verb? That's on your translation. Empty. He emptied himself. Like he poured himself out. Like he just, he just, you know, he was all full of all this wonderful stuff. He poured it out. You know, he emptied himself, came for a bond servant. Being made the likeness of a man. I mean, he came from being God to being a man. You know, can you think of some of the things that you know happened with Jesus and the Jesus experience on the earth that he never went through in heaven? Hunger. Temptation. Mockery. Temptation. Temptation. Pain. Scorn. Sickness. Frustration. Scorn. 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 Some of those things are not in some senses in which he had in heaven. I'm not saying where he got here. He didn't have it all in heaven. 
being around sin, like living in the middle of that. You know, you think about what it was like to be a holy God. You know, can you imagine? I don't know what's the worst possible environment. Can you imagine? You know, gang, you know, drug gang, where they're constantly double crossing each other. You constantly got to watch your back. You can't trust anybody. You're constantly on the run from the police. You know, I mean, they're just the morality is zero. I mean, you know, wow, no respect for anything or anybody. You know, that would be really awful. That would be really icky. It'd be nothing compared to going from being totally pure and holy to having to live with and on sin. That's just stage one. He emptied himself. What's the main verb in verse 8? Humble. He humbled himself. He, you know, he, he emptied himself to go from being God to being a man. Then he humbled himself to do what? To die. Now, it says he became obedient unto death. Isn't that a funny way to say that? Do you know anybody who dies? Have you ever been around anybody who died? Was, was, did they die because they were so obedient? Why did they die? Yeah, old age, they got sick, or they got in a wreck, or, you know, something like, you know, for most of us, death is actually kind of like a requirement. We don't have a whole lot of choice about it. You know, it's not obedience. For Jesus, it was obedience. You know, he didn't have to. He voluntarily laid his life down. If Jesus wanted to snap his fingers and say, it's over, I'm not doing this. He could have done it. He could have called the legions of angels. You know, he, so he became obedient to the point of death, but not just any death. What kind of death? The death on the cross. What was the worst thing about dying on the cross? The pain was, from what I understand, really horrible. Because you know how you died physically when you were crucified, from what I understand? You suffocated. Most of you know that. You know, like, I don't know. I don't really try to, I don't know, straight up anyway. I don't need to, like, pull up and things like that. But if you were hanging, like that. You can't really breathe without pulling up some or pushing off some. At least not very much. You can't get a very deep breath when you're just totally relaxed hanging. Am I right about that? But to fill up your lungs, you have to pull up a little bit or push off a little bit. Well, you see they nailed their, maybe they nailed their wrists and their ankles. There's a debate about that. And they may have put some kind of a cross piece in the crouch. But still, basically, They've got to pull up to push off, you know, to, to breathe deeply. Well, guess which one they did most, pulling up or pushing off? Pushing off, because you've got a lot more strength in your legs than you do in your arms. You know, how long can you be able to keep pulling up, you know, get a breath? You know, when you already lost a bunch of fluids through the scourging and all that, and you're just hanging there, do you push off longer? But guess what you're pushing off again? The nails, the spikes. Which one of those is? And, and as your muscles start to cramp and all that, you start getting shallow and shallower breaths, and your lungs start filling up with fluid. And you just suck it. That's what they said. Does that sound like a neat way to go? Sounds horrible. That wasn't the worst thing, though, about the crucifixion. Yeah. They? 
Yeah, the worst thing is, it's like Jesus was taking our sin upon him. Like he was separated from God from some cross. That's my understanding of conviction. He took our death upon himself. And that wasn't just physical death, that was a spiritual death. It's like he experienced torment for us. I'll tell you, this is a really bad crucifixion. Well, who do they use crucifixion for? Yeah, so this terrible thing. I mean, if you go around bragging about your, uh, your close relative that died on like a chair, you know, usually the electric chair is not for guys, you know, who shoplifted a couple things. You know, you have to do something pretty horrible to get the electric chair. You know, so if you have a close family member that, that went through that, you probably haven't told many people about that. So Jesus went through that. So, what does this say about Jesus? This whole process, being God in heaven, to die on the cross, what does that say about him? He was a servant. The measure of the extent of Jesus' sacrifice of himself for others is the distance between equality with God and public execution of the cross. That's how much he sacrificed himself for others. Let this attitude be in you, which was in Jesus. That's what we do. Sacrifice ourselves totally to serve. That is amazing. Do you have that attitude in you? Or are we still a lot more selfish than Jesus? A lot more prideful than Jesus? Wow, that is a huge challenge. That's what these divided brethren needed. They need to think like Jesus thought. With that, I think that ourselves. Our problem most of the time is we think too much about people. want too much for me and not carry enough how Jesus loved us so much to go through this. We tend to imitate what we really admire or are impressed by, certainly praying for it, and then starting to make specific sacrifices of ourselves to serve. The more we give up to serve, the more it strengthens that unselfishness muscle and that sacrifice muscle. So we have to start taking practical steps. And you just think about, I'll tell you something that's just so impressive with God and Jesus, is how much they loved and cared. 
You know, I mean, why did they go through this? Because they cared so much about us. So you're seeking to constantly develop the compassion, the heart of Jesus for other people like you. Good, good questions. Other thoughts? Well, what did God do with Jesus once he uh, poured himself out and, and humbled himself? What did God do then? Yeah, isn't it interesting that the one God chose to exalt the most was the one who had most humbled himself? I think that's really cool to think about and reflect on. You know, and how high did he bring Jesus? He went from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. That is an incredible transformation. You know, to where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I love the universal left to the glory of God the Father. If you, if you worship Jesus, is there any chance the Father could get jealous? No, it doesn't work like that. The more you honor Jesus, the more you honor the Father. You know, it glorifies Him for you to honor Jesus. That, that, that's the thing that we see, you know, in this. Is that we... Uh, you know, there's no rivalry, there's no competition. So, the more we glorify Jesus, the more God is glorified. What do you, what do you mean? I said that carry this up to somewhere. Carry it up to work. So, we need some strong men. Uh, do we have any strong men in here? Do we have any other men? How many do we need? I have no idea We have strong men, we have some others. As you can tell, way that the real big thing in my life. Good choke up.
All right, 12 to 18, if somebody read that. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as an archer of your but now much more than my pastors, work out your salvation with sin and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will to work and to work for his good work. You all think you have one thing more disputing, so that you will prove to yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God and love and virtue in the midst of a broken and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of God, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or oil. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. So, just like you've always obeyed, not just when I'm there, but when I'm not there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, who's the pattern of obedience for us? Who obeyed? Jesus, as we said in verse 8. Now, we need to obey like he did. Have you, how are you when nobody's looking? Do you obey the Lord then? Is it easier to obey the Lord when people are looking or when they're not? When they're looking, right? But what does that show about us when we'll obey Him when they're looking but not when they're not? Men pleasers. Men pleasers. That's exactly right. You know, God is looking at us always. You know, and so it doesn't matter if, if, if other Christians don't, if anybody else knows it or not. We need to be much more concerned about our character than our image. There were all the time thinking about what I look like. What do you do exactly? Be a good person. Do the right thing. Don't worry about your example as much as you worry about just being who God wants you to be. The example, take care of itself. You know, don't just believe, don't just obey when I live. Obey all the time. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's serious issues at stake. You know, we need to be careful that we're not overconfident, that we're not complacent, that we're really serious about our spiritual life. Um, he says, for it's God who's at work in you. You know, you work hard because God is working in you. You don't want to frustrate his masterpiece. If he's working in you, you better cooperate. And don't let his work be empty in your life. And do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you grumble and, and murmur, how does that compare with Jesus' attitude? Complete opposite. Yeah, it is. Can you imagine Jesus? This is so disgusting. You know, these people are so stupid around me. Why God gave me these 12? And you know, it's just, it's hot and it's boring and it's just, oh man, I hate this. Do you ever see Jesus that way? Jesus was not like that. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't focused on his comfort. I'll tell you when you start grumbling and murmuring, it really interferes with unity. really interferes with that uh, you know, close relationship of one mind and one heart and one spirit. Because when you start grumbling and complaining, how are you going to work together? I don't like the person I don't like. 
like that person. I don't like what they. What did I just read the other day? Yeah, I can't remember. A really good line about that. Uh, but anyhow, you know, when if, if we're always, you know, uh, complaining about our brethren, we're not going to love them, and we're going to be united with them. We need to seek their best interests. Thank God he's not a murmurer and a complainer and a grumbler, or we'd be in terrible shape. Let's change our heart about people and about circumstances. You know, you hear all the time, oh, it's so hard. It's just it's hard. It's really hard. Quit complaining, just do it. Nobody said it was easy. I don't think it was for Jesus. But he did it. And he submitted to his father's will. Comment two questions in verse 14. Right. A question. Um, sometimes I, I find it hard to find a balance between complaining and then just bringing something up negative. I mean, I mean we're allowed to bring up something that's negative, but some, sometimes you take that as complaining. I don't know, I just have, I find a hard time having a balance. Yes. Well, do we find in the Bible ever anything negative? About people? Yeah. I mean, look at the prophets. Look at Jesus. Look. You know, I would say Jesus didn't complain, but did he ever tell somebody they were wrong? Rather strongly? Yeah. You know, uh, how about overturning the tables of money changers? Uh, so what's the difference? Yeah, should we ever be angry like Jesus was? Yeah, we need to have the same attitude Jesus did, but it wasn't selfish in Jesus' case. Really, a lot of the time when you see the Bible really strong things, because they were concerned about first. It wasn't complaining. It was trying to help them change. It was warning them about the danger they were in because you loved and cared about the person. There's a difference between loving somebody and warning them and rebuking them. And part of the difference is whether or not we're self-focused in that or whether or not we're focused on the Word of God. Are you thinking, my words does this person change because they're annoying me, they're bugging me, I, I don't like the way they treat me, what is it like and I'm worried about them, they're not serving the Lord, they're not serving God like they should. And I want them to serve God. You know, I think that's the difference. Paul, that's a good question. You know, it's interesting that Paul mentions this in verse 14 while he's in prison. Yeah. He had a good opportunity to grumble and complain there if he'd wanted one, didn't he? You know, I, we could certainly imagine that. But you remember what he said in chapter 1? The things that actually turned out to be a blessing, they turned out to the greater progress of the gospel. Thankfully. I like how when you really look at it all, you see that the reason There's no other explanation. It's submitted to his father's will. But his father's will was his will, and the father did it because of love. That's exactly right. Good comment. So he says in verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be innocent, blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. It's amazing how much light will stand out in darkness. The worse the world is, the more the Christian shines the light of Christ 
and brings the world to him. He says we ought to be holding fast the word of life. We need to be holding out the word of life, shining it out, showing people what Christ is like and telling people what Christ is like. That's what our life is. We must not blend in. We must stand out. We must not shut up. We must speak out and glorify the Lord. That's our mission as Christians. And then he says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Do you know what a drink offering was? Some of your translations may say libation, but that means a drink offering. What was that? Yes, exactly. I don't know if you knew they did that. Numbers 28 and 29 are good chapters that talk about like, the amount of drink offering you needed to pour out to accompany the other offerings, depending on the kind of offering it was. It was also, also like a grain offering that would accompany the main offering. It was, it, I think the concepts of what was the concepts of the building. The, the sacrifice was like a meal, so you'd offer the meat, you'd have the, the grain, and you'd have the drink. And they'd all go together to make a complete offering. So, so you mix together this, this drink offering, and pour it out on the main offering, and that was a part of the sacrifice. Well, Paul is looking at himself as being this drink offering that's poured out. What does he see as being the main sacrifice that he was being poured out over? No. Them, their faith. You know, their faith is like a sacrifice that's being offered up to God, and he's like this drink offering that's being poured out to complete that sacrifice and make it pleasing to God. Now, I love that analogy. Because when you think about somebody being poured out for somebody else, what does it make you think? Serving them. Giving up everything, like Jesus pouring himself out, emptying himself, it's the same idea. It's like you just completely get rid of yourself and you're poured out to serve others. I think it's a great visual concept. That's how Paul looked at himself. And, you know, if you're being poured out to serve others, that's probably, you know, hard, it's painful, but how do Paul feel about doing that? He rejoiced. He rejoiced. He was thrilled for the opportunity to pour himself out to serve. By the way, you can stand up anytime you want to. So. Uh, he, was, he, was, he wanted to. He wanted to, to give himself up to serve others. To pour himself out for their faith to complete their sacrifice. Do you love when we get a chance to, to, to give things up to serve other people? To give up your time, your money, and your desires and your will to just be poured out for them. Don't you love it when that happens? That's kind of hard to want, isn't it? Kind of hard to rejoice in. Because again, we so often tend to be very selfish. Thank you, guys. Hard to, to not want our own will to be done. 
And so, you know, we just, we just pour ourselves out. So think about what Paul is saying in the context. You know, he's saying, sacrifice yourself. You know, love others. Serve them. Give yourself to them. Like Jesus did. Like Paul himself did. Here are two wonderful examples of people who poured themselves out to serve others. That's our life. Observations and comments through uh, 18. Yes. I think a lot of times it's easier for us to How grateful were we when Jesus was sacrificing himself for us? Now, excellent point. We're not doing it to get recognition or even a thank you. We're doing it because we love and want to serve John. Um, on the drink offering, I studied that a good bit, trying to figure out what that was. Um, and it was Really care. 
Timothy's really about the only one around him that really genuinely cares about others. I would have thought, wouldn't it have been great to be back there in the days of the Apostle Paul where everybody really loved God and was sincere and everybody was willing to sacrifice themselves to serve the Lord and it was so encouraging. Evidently, they don't like that. Evidently, they were selfish and, you know, prideful and things like that back there, just like we are. And he said, really, Timothy's the only guy that would really seriously and sincerely care for you. Do you ever feel sorry for yourself because you look around and pretty much nobody's taking care of very much. Pretty much nobody's really dedicated to the Lord. Like you may look in your church, maybe at the other young people in your church, it's like, none of them really care. None of them are really willing to sacrifice. Maybe you look around, even the adults in your church, and you say, which is really not the attitude of the Lord. You know, maybe one or two. Isn't that discouraging? You know, you feel sorry for something. It's not fair. It's not right. Well, look at all, all that done. He's got one guy. He said, I don't know. If I had one unselfish guy around me, I'm not sure I'd want to save him. <laughs> I think I might want to keep him with me. But Paul's eager to send him for the benefit of the Philippians. It's not an amazing attitude. Paul always cared about the others and one of them. But isn't that a great thing about Timothy? That he stood out as a rare jewel in a world of self-seekers. And, and we know, I mean, Timothy's got quite the background. Grew up in a great home, Timothy. Not exactly. What was bad about Timothy's whole life? You're going to come here and change for some reason. What? Yeah. He didn't have a believing father. And you don't have a believing father. You know, if so, well, Timothy was just like you were. You know, he could have a good mother and grandmother. Thank God for that. And they evidently taught him. But I'll tell you, as a, as a young man, that, that served the Lord. Um, and man, he was so young when he started to come to Especially because of where he was from. Remember which town Timothy was from? Where was he from? Lystra. Now, Paul picked him up the third time he was in Lystra. Right? He was through Lystra twice in the first journey. So the third time he went to Lystra, Paul picked him up. Well, how many years later? Two, three, I don't know. So what happened to Paul in Lystra the very first time he went there? He got stoned and he didn't do that at the bar. You know, it was uh, the physical kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I've often wondered, did Timothy, had, did, he, did he see that? He hadn't heard it. I mean, it had to be everyone talk about it. I mean, the biggest thing was Paul had been drunk out of the city. God, he was dead. Somehow he managed to revive the next day. I don't know if the Lord helped him with that a little supernaturally or, or if it wasn't necessary. But, but anyhow, and so a couple years later, 
your, I don't know, probably Philip's age, or Sean's age, or Jacob's age, or, or, or Dave's age, something like that. And uh, Paul wants you to go with him. <laughs> hey, you're going to be a traveling companion for me and Silas. You know, we're going to some new places, spread the gospel. Uh, we'd like for you to join us. What are you going to say? I got school! <laughs> Good one. Uh, you know, I'm going to need to stay home with Paul. He's a spider. He might be even more fucking Christian. You know, so you, I don't want to get. You know, can you think of all the things you could have said? You know, maybe you got excited to travel, but I don't think under these circumstances I would have felt very much excitement. Timothy had this long career of just giving himself to the Lord. He's the one God, all he said, that would unselfishly care for them. And that's what he's going to do. He hopes to, as soon as thing, he knows how things are going with him, so that he can kind of give him a, give them a report. And of course, it's just great what he says in verse 22 about him. I mean, man, they just are so close, like father and son. That's really cool. It's really encouraging. And uh, Paul's hoping he himself will get to come soon. Of course, that's going to depend on getting right out of prison. But he's hoping that that'll happen, and he'll get to see them as well. Comments or thoughts on that? I'm going to say, I don't think that's right. What does it say on your schedule for the PM activity? Does it? Yeah. Well, uh, goodbye. <laughs> yes. Girls are going to go swimming. So the right now, the girls are going to Yeah. And then tomorrow we'll try to do the same. 